With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here are your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast, Inside the Tour. I'm Nina Pantic, and I'm joined by Irina Falcone. Hey guys, how's it going? Today is an awesome episode. We have Nick Bollicheri. I interviewed him actually a few months ago at the U.S. Open. Got to talk about pretty much everything from players he's worked with, from the book he's working on, which he's literally writing by himself uh, with a pencil, which is wild. Uh, I'm talking about the Showtime movie, Love Means Zero, talking about his family, his actual dreams when he first started out, what he actually was dreaming of doing, which is not anything to do with tennis. And then kind of get a sense of of the legacy he wants to leave behind, which is really eye-opening and really inspirational. And we talk about so many different things that it's really worth a lesson. So here's Nick Bollettieri. So yeah, welcome to Tennis.com podcast. I'm really happy that you could talk to me today. And I just want to cover, you know, the gamut of things that you want to talk about, basically. What I kind of want to know about is you have a book coming out? And it's the book okay. is the very first book I've ever done myself. I've had, I think, 10 or 11 books. I don't know how to use a computer. My thumb is twice the size from using a pen. It is called A Coach's Journey, starting in 1957, my first job, North Miami Beach, $3 an hour. It is a picture of me with a wooden racket. So what I do, the first part of the book will be what I've learned from 30 of my best players. Each player will be different than what I learned from them. The next part of the book, of course, you'll have a forward, and Paul Anacone did the forward. So then the book goes to what it takes to be a leader, trust, and all about the, the commander of the Blue Angels in 1995. Wrote the whole chapter, and it shows me, after 41 years of wanting to fly with the Blue Angels, I'm in the plane, ready to go down the runway. And the next part is Nick's simple, simple, simple tips. Nothing come. For instance... How do you play a junk player? Tell me about the sissy shot, the drop shot. So it's all simple, simple tip. Not to say that I'm a better coach than other coaches. What I learned, my language, is simple tips. The next part of the lesson uh, of the book is motivational tips by Nick. But when I give a motivational tip, I then break it down to life. And the last part of the book, what I've learned from approximately 50 to 60 of the people that have made an impact 
on their life in their words. I mean, you're definitely a living legend. I grew up playing tennis as a kid. Um, I played at UCLA in college, right. and I trained in Florida. I never went to your academy, but I played Eddie Hare from the age of oh, like eight years, from the age really? of ten. Great story. There every year. <laughs> and, you know, to me, you're like a living legend. Thank you. And reading, I've read all your books, obviously, and having another one coming out is really incredible. But Did you see Showtime? Of course. That was good. Of course. Yeah, I that was good. And I'd like to say this. I had a chance to meet Ken Solomon many years ago at the French Open. He said, Nick, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring tennis to millions of homes. And he did it. But you know why? It's a crazy idea. The same as what Richard Williams did with Venus and Serena, and the same as Nick, being crazy to start the first living tennis academy. So Ken joins that group. And in order to do what Ken Solomon's done, you have to be a little crazy there. And you can't listen to people who say, you can't do it. And tennis Channel's come a long way. Oh, it's fantastic there. And with the movie, so were you happy with how it came out? You know what my daddy said? Any publicity, baby. Is good publicity, and the amount of speeches and clinics I got from that, fantastic. And to be in the billboard in Times Square, love means zero, Nick volunteering, that ain't bad, baby, okay? I thought it was interesting how he kind of pulled the story together out of you, really, you know, and there's some, some touchy subjects, and then there's some great subjects. But like there was said, a lot of cuss words going back and forth, I tell you. A lot of quality time you spent yeah, together. It was the first time I ever sat down for eight, 90 minutes here. For me to sit 90 minutes in the chair and watch it. It's everywhere. Yeah. And it should be. Yeah. It's an interesting story, but the, the, inter- the most interesting part for me is how you deal with different players. Different, they're completely different. Different game, different person, different family, different story. Whatever success I've had is God gave me the ability not to read wives, but how to read people. Boris Becker said, Nick's a genius. Because he sees the little things, gives you a little tip, and walks away. But don't forget Agus, Selish, Curry, Venusur. They were all different there. And I was able to get to know them as a person and what made them tick. And then if you got to know how to make them tick, your chances of success are a lot higher. But how did you figure out different a player comes to you, they're twelve years old, how do you know like that one's gonna make it, that one's not? God gave me. Gambling. God said, Nick, right there, and I was able to almost predict when it's supposed to die. Much more difficult now to predict the top players because the whole world is playing. So, but now to say, hey, I think I got Nick, not anymore here. Too so it's different. different. Okay. Very different. So how do you do it? Do you, are you still coaching, working with young players oh, now? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I'm with IMG, of course. And I see the young players. I help Whitney Oswegi. And I always give a little tip to Kay's coach, Nishikori, Danielle Collins. And then I work with the General Academy, seeing all the full-time students. And do parents come to you and say, you know, do you think my kid can make it? Do they come and oh, they come pay you me. for the vote? They come to me and say, Nick, I have the next champion. Now remember, put this out of 3,000 people playing the men's and ladies' tour. One percent will make a living. Yeah. So, back in the 80s, late 70s, I turned my kids pro when they were still in diapers. Ninety-nine percent of the boys and girls should go to college for a year or two, and then maybe consider going pro. Unless 
He sponsor comes up and says, here, here's two or three million dollars. Not that easy anymore. Just developing so many players and across so many years. But you had such a simple beginning. You just said you want to have an academy and you had the kids in your apartment. Like, I, I grew up with my coach in my house. Like, that's where he lived for a couple of years when I was 12 to 16 because you're kind of always together. Well, it was Jimmy Aries, Carlin Bass, and Craig Steves, and Pam house. I had 10 living in my house when I was coached at the Colony Beach Hotel, then to a motel and a club, and then my friend let me $2 million to buy the original 40 to 50 acres to build the first living academy. And you said to make it, or to, to be great, you have to do something a little bit different, right? So that was something different. Absolutely. I was the first one did. Yeah. No one else ever did this in the history of tennis. Mm, it, takes, it takes balls. It takes balls. <laughs> and and you see. Did you get any feedback from the players in the, the Showtime movie Love Means Zero? Did you get any feedback from, you know, the Seguso or Horvath or, or Courier? Very much so. The nice thing about it is Jim Curry's, he, he's, he's like my man. And me sitting in the box that time, coaching Andre and Jim. At the French Open, yeah. And then throwing out Kathleen Horvath. This man, he ruled my life. Calling Bassett came, I could have beat a city down. Is that hard to watch? Did you know? But you knew how they felt. Absolutely. Yeah. Baby, when you went through my life, nothing's tough to watch. And nothing's perfect. Nothing is perfect. Anybody says anything bad about me in front of Carling, she'll whack you in the head. I mean, she'll whack you right in the head. When you watched today's game, so you mentioned Venus and Serena. Did you, when they came, they've been through your, your academy before. Oh, you, you spent quality time with them. Oh, yes. Are I, you surprised that they're still here? Knowing Richard Williams, and everybody said he couldn't do it, that he was crazy, didn't know how to coach, look what he did. And me being with Williams was a big part of my life. And we're at the uh, Palm Springs, Indian Wells. Venus was playing draft in the finals, and I sort of told Venus what to do. And after the match, Richard said, eat your white ass down here with us black people, baby. And of course, I... That's how close we were. And when I had pneumonia a couple of years ago, Anna Kornikova and Serena, they filled the hospital with flowers. And don't forget my Tommy Haas, baby. Tommy's special. He never wanted to throw in the flag to say I quit. But after five operations, he came when he was 11, and his sister Sabine was playing the Orange Bowl. He was in a room with five other boys at the academy. Sister came home. I'm going home. Two years later, his father, Peter, said, Nick, I'm sending you my son. Tommy became part of me. But what's it like to sit or be part of these teams? Like, I know in the in, you've said that being part of Agassiz's team was the best team in the world. It was something special here. Gil Reyes and his brother and Bill Shelton. At nighttime, we went to French Open. We have to go out and get about $250 worth of McDonald's. The temperature is 32, and we had to watch horror movies. That was Andre. That's what we had to do. Oh, we had great times. Is, is that something you look back on fondly? Oh, yeah. And about oh, a couple of months ago, Andre called me. It was early in the morning. He said, Nick, are you okay? I said, yeah, he said, I had a dream. I want to make sure you're okay. And we talked about his son, who's excellent baseball, by the way. As Gil Reyes said, his trainer, who was, he was the, the team. 
He said there'll never be another team like that in the history of tennis. It was a beautiful team. You know, the movie left me feeling like I've, I know your story. I, I understand the academy. I've been yeah. there. But your movie left me feeling like I really wanted Agassi to reach out to you yeah. and talk it out. That's yeah. that's my the message I got was like I really wanted to figure this out, yeah. you know. But you guys communicate, so that's oh, yeah. great. We, we do here, and uh, I didn't get that sense at all in the movie. I was like, oh, oh they don't no. speak. Like what a disaster. And as Jim Curry said. Andre broke every rule, baby. You should have thrown him out a hundred times. But I saw something special. It's a good thing I did because at the Hall of Fame when Andre spoke, he was one of the seven speakers. He said, if it wasn't for Nick Volatieri, I'd never be worrying today. In the Hall of Fame, you were, you were part of it? Yes. And how was, how was that? That was pretty recently. That was a big honor. That was 2014. But I'm also proud of being the first white person inducted into the black tennis thing. And my little son Chacomo, my son Peter, Daddy, you gotta work on your tan a little oh, bit more. <laughs> pretty tan. <laughs> yeah. So I've been pretty pretty fortunate. The Black Hall of Fame and me starting the Ash Voluntary Inner City program. That probably is as important to me as all my ten number ones. How involved are you in that? Oh did it. Still, <laughs> Funded still fully, it. yeah. Funded 13 years, baby. Yeah. That's a good that's a good run. Yeah. So you adopted two children. From They're very field. young, right? Yes. They're now, they were four and four and a half. Okay. So now I, now I have a son in the 60s, okay. daughter in the 50s, a daughter in the 40s, a daughter in the 30s, daughter in the 20s, a son in the teens, and a son in the 10 and under. What is uh, day-to-day life then? Are you involved? Are you, are you at home a lot? Do you travel a lot? I travel a lot, and their mother does a great job. You know, the other thing that, that I think is is interesting, I think we have to give more tips to the everyday player. When they watch television, you say, look at that boy. They can't do that. You've got to get down to their level of what they can do. Very important. And one of the big things in, in my book is how parents relate to their children. You don't judge your children by the score or by the grades. You judge your children by the effort. If they do all the effort, they'll win it even though they lose by the score. And my friend who got me started in my camps in Wisconsin, Vince Lombardi, the great football, said, my team's never lost. We just win at a time. So I, I think those are the messages that very few people bring up, is how to react to children where coaches can change their personality for the rest of their life. When a child goes home and he's in a group lesson, goes home, is unable to hit the balls over, and the coach says, come on, everybody else is doing it. Low self-esteem, doesn't eat, subject to the devils of drugs and alcohol. These are the messages. Forget the big forehand and the big back. That's more important. Do you think that you've done, you've made an impact in kids' lives in that way? Yes. Yes. And I, I love speaking to inner city children, and I do a lot with the USTA. And when you go to these tournaments and you go to these events, do you, do you see players and it's always like a, a big reunion? Oh, yes. I think being one of the most famous coaches in the world is a big achievement because yeah. no one usually pays much attention to the coach. Right. A little bit. It depends on the name. Yeah. Serena's coach. You know, it depends yeah. on the name. But a lot of times the coach kind of slides under the radar. And, and the other thing is uh, the book brings out that coaches, I'm not a better teacher than you. All I want to do is share my success and failures. 
Not to tell you how to teach, but tell you, this is what will happen if it can help you. I booked in this success. Do any coaches on tour stand out to you as, as doing oh, a great yeah, job? You have Darren Cahill, Patrick Murdoch, excellent. Uncle Tony did a great job. Oh, no, he did a great job. Do they ever ask you for advice or talk uh, to you? Uh, Patrick is a good friend of mine. Okay. Yes. And, you know, Chip Brooks, another one, Pat Harrison. A lot of the coaches, at, you know, Kane Ishikori's coach, of course, at the academy. Are you surprised to see these players deep in their 30s? These Serena and Venus, for example. It's amazing. Are you surprised? And, and look at Federer. The ages have gone up, and the penalty of being the best players today, the little rabbits, they take you out in the first round. Yeah. We've never had this. Last year or two, top seeds don't have an easy one, two, or three rounds anymore, dear. That's the difference between now and 10 or 15 years ago. It's a huge difference. Oh. The U.S. Open, you know, someone will have lost the first round. It's never happened. Top seed. Very But that player she played, Kenefi, was amazing. No, no question. I, I enjoy watching the Tennis Channel and uh, Korea, Paul Anacone. Yeah. They're fantastic. So listening to them must be wild for you because it you is. work with because them. Because of my boy. Yeah. Uh, it's just been a great thing. Um, I never thought I would be where I am today. Because if I thought, I, I would never have done the things I've done here. Okay. I just did. But if I'd given thought, I'd never be where I am today. Okay. A lot of, a lot of times in that movie, you said, oh, I don't remember what happened. I don't. Because you just did that. I didn't even remember the names of my wife. She started talking. I, I said, well, you, either we do this or it's over. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't remember half the thing. My manager tell me, I move on to you. That's me. Forget I move on. and move on. Almost move like on. in tennis. You, you miss the point, you move on. That's it. Agassi said a great statement. Four or five years ago, we gave a clinic in Long Island. The young kid said, Mr. Agassi, what's the most important point? The next point. Can't do anything about the previous, but you can impact the next shot. What do you see in tennis now that that is so different than when you know the prime of your players were doing well? You can't have a weakness today you have to be able to do a little bit of everything. And the drop shot has become a huge weapon. Huge. It perhaps is as big as a sonic serve. It's amazing the amount of drop shots that you see. And uh, don't forget my Anna Kornikova. When we went to play tournaments, when we warmed up, the wives were always looking for their husband. They were always there to watch my Anna. She was a great girl. And Monica, the kindest people in the world. And Mary Pierce is up to the Hall of Fame this year. I hope that she gets it. She's kind girl. Was there a huge difference working with men versus women or girls versus boys? I think the difference is that the girls are, I think, much more emotional here. And a lot more. In fact, I have There's not a lot of female coaches. Yeah, Moresmo. My Aunt Grossman now is a coach. She was one of my first students. Really? Oh, hell okay. no, Okay. Oh, hell yeah. In fact, we were just, uh, we did something yesterday uh, with, with Ann and myself and, uh, and Annie won on blood and guts. Didn't have big weapons, but she fought. You said Agassiz is a rebel and, and did everything kind of the wrong way, broke all the rules, right? Do you see a similarity in Nick Kyrgios a little bit? Very much so, and I could have a chance with him. You know what I would do? I'd, let, I'd listen to him. I wouldn't say one word. Tell me about yourself. 
then he'd give me a little idea. And I would say, let me answer something. You just said this. What are you willing to to make that come? But I would listen to him. But in my Italian way, don't you worry. A little bit here, a little bit there. We'll get it in the door. Don't worry. <laughs> I've, I've heard you say before that you listen to players and you find out about them as their personalities, their family, their likes, their dislikes, more Abs- than their forehand. Absolutely. And how is that important? It's important because you know that the pressures are on them, the expectations that are on them, are there realistic goals? When you find out all of those things, it gives you a better chance to help them reach their goals. And then when you when you first started coaching, did you learn this about yourself, that you needed to learn this about them? I didn't know my ass mailbow when I said In fact, I... I I probably talked from the wrong head. I probably talked from the handle at the ball. But uh, that's in the book in 1957 when I became. $3 an hour. $3 an hour. Two tennis courts broken down with a Pepsi Cola machine with an umbrella through the middle, baby. $3 an hour. That's what I made. And then holding a flag, and then it's going to say, now Nick is holding a racket. And let's see. And then it begins this way. For the very first time in my entire life, I really and truthfully became aware of some of my life when Nick sat still and watched my Showtime documentary, Love Me Zero, 90 minutes long. Yes, with the help of other people, I wrote several other books. I do not know how to use a computer, and it's even a struggle for me to use my iPhone with a pad and paper. I pressed down with my thumb, now twice the size, and began writing, night and day, sleep is a waste of time. A coach's journey. I want each of you to be part of my journey. I have learned, in order to be successful, a person must first identify in themselves their talents and to maximize those talents. Only at that time you can help others reach their talents. My mission in writing this book was to make sure no matter who you are, what you do, how old you are, is to make sure, I mean, make sure you truly understand that your dreams are telling you a message. Now, it's up to you to make your dream come true. Do you believe that it took me 41 years to make my dream come true to fly in the Navy F-18 fighter jet? A man is a success who has a smile and is happy with himself and then shares with others his happiness in some way. And I will find that way to help others be just like me. That's my introduction. That's great. Huh? Are we right? And then you just kept writing. Kept writing. On paper. That's unheard of. Wrote the whole goddamn book myself. This is inspirational. First time I've ever written my own book. Yeah, because usually there's there's help. Yeah. You get the real feeling I had to write it myself. What was the motivation? Was it because you wanted to have something that you did? Yeah, something that I did that could help people and bring out how important my life's mission is to help people. And the more I wrote the book better again. I probably spent 
500 hours. But your dream wasn't to be a tennis coach and part of Andre Agassi's winning team. Your dream was to be in the Navy. I wanted to be a a Navy fighter. fighter. So I fought the test and became a a master paratrooper. How come no one ever talks about that? I don't know, but my, my almost three years in the service very helpful in my life. So the process of becoming in becoming a trooper, you had to join well, the army. I had an ROTC commission, then I flunked the test, the written test for the Naval Air Corps. So I joined, so I went into the Transportation Corps. So I volunteered to become a paratrooper. That was 1953, baby, when I graduated college. So then, out of out of that, why did you stop? In the military? Yeah, three years then. That was it. You know, I, I spent my three years, and then my daddy said, son, I think you become a famous lawyer. I had only fair grades, but my uncle, De Flippo, and a water commissioner, Sapiti, they called the president of the University of Miami, I got in law school. Then I had to make some money, and the water commissioner let me teach on those courts. Did and you have any experience? None. I went down the street and watched Slim Harpet at Henderson Park, hold the racket this way, slide your hand down the racket, shake hands, one, two, don't jump, don't jump. Shit, I can do that. And that's how I started. That's how I started here. And the dean said to me, Mr. Volunteer, you've got to come to law school dressed like a lawyer. I went in my shorts to go to work. Third time I said, Dean, shove the books up your ass. I lasted three months in law school. Told my daddy, said, Dad, I'm going to become special in tennis. My dad said, Son, I support you in everything you do. Go for it. That's what I did. So, well, I really want to thank you for your time. Sure. It's been great to have you on the podcast, but also just chatting with you. I really, I really appreciate it. You're not going to have too many like Nick and Steve. Okay, so for me, the most wild thing about this interview like obviously sitting with Nick Volatieri for half an hour was was incredible just even hanging out with him but when he pulled this book out of his backpack and it was just a stack of papers and he's just telling me that he wrote it by hand I mean I I cannot get over that because no one does that like who who does that that's just old school to the freaking max I I think that's so genuine I mean he literally put all his thoughts on a piece of paper just screw the computer, screw even a phone. And to be able to just put that much time and not get hand cramps and not just give up and be like, all right, have someone else write it for me, it's truly unbelievable. I don't think that there's a lot of people nowadays that are able to do that. He con- he confessed that all the other books he's written, he had somebody else kind of do it for him, which makes sense. I think that's how all people like celebrities and, and non-authors will do it. The sense I got is he's trying so hard to leave a legacy behind, even though he's kind of already has. He wants like one final, almost like a memoir that he himself is giving to the world. And part of me was thinking like, oh, you know, he probably just wants to like sell more books and make more money. But like, I don't think that's it. I think this is genuinely a guy who wants to hash it all out from his own heart, pen to paper, and leave something behind i mean i'm gonna read it it doesn't come out it was, it was supposed to come out in december and it'll be out in february that's what his agent and his manager steve told me so that's the latest on that but we also talk about the movie which is already out uh if you haven't seen it I highly recommend it it's so good love means zero and he kind of came off poorly in this movie not poorly but he came off tough like he came off like he made all these really big decisions in life with people and with his clients and his players and Agassiz and Courier and kind of left them in the dust but he's like you know what 
my dad always said, any publicity is good publicity. And he's like super thrilled about it and just taking it as a positive. When you asked him, you said, what did you think of the movie? You know, and the first thing he said was like, my dad said, any publicity is good publicity. That's not really answering the question per se. So he probably understands that there is a part of him that was probably portrayed not in the most positive light, if you will. Totally. And I think he he's doing, I don't think he's doing it strategically. I think he, when he says in the movie, like, I don't even remember my wife's names. I think the way you deal with a career like that and the, the things he had to do, you have to have a short memory or a selective memory. Almost like in tennis, he just says, you know what? Like if I had thought a lot about everything I was going to do, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have made the Nick Bollettieri Academy the way it is. I wouldn't have made all these players if I was just sitting there and thinking about everyone's feelings. And it's like, well, but another thing he also talks about is, obviously he talks about all the players he's coached. He's coached Agassi, he's coached the Venus and Serena Williams, Jim Kerr. I mean, he's name him, he's coached them. But someone he's never coached, someone who he maybe should coach, Nick Kyrgios, who I kind of casually brought up. I mean, honestly, I thought that was the perfect headline when we were just starting to talk about it. I was like, Nick coaching Nick. I mean, come on. Nick did mention something about there's not enough women coaches on the tour, and Emily Maresmo just announced that she's going to be working with Lucas Puy. And one of the most extraordinary things that I found while listening to Nick is that he really doesn't talk about the actual game per se. He wants to know about you. He wants to know about what you're like. He wants to know what you're thinking. And that's so important in today's world because so many people are so involved with technique and form and everything else you kind of forget to just ask the questions that actually matter. He does seem to genuinely, genuinely really like love all his players, care about who he's working with, care about the person behind the strokes. You know, I don't think I don't think he sees players as dollar signs. I don't think he sees them as Grand Slam winning machines. I think he sees them as people and and people love him. Like when I was at the US Open with him, we were walking around to get from I interviewed him in the Tennis Channel studio in like this little room off the site a little bit. So we got to walk around a bit and people go crazy for him. Like they want to get photos, they want to say hi, they want to get autographs. He's like hands down the most famous tennis coach I think in history. And as much as, you know, maybe this movie and as much as he admits that yeah, he's he's made some tough choices and bad decisions maybe. Maybe not bad decisions, but but, but tough decisions. People love him. And the hardest thing from that movie Love Me and Zero is seeing him and Agassi fall out and you're just kind of I was left hoping and praying, like, oh, God, come on, Agassi, like, forgive this guy. Like, But then in the interview, he says, oh, yeah, Agassi called me recently. And I'm just like, oh, yes, perfect. Like, they're communicating in some minimal as it might be. I have no idea. I, he didn't share. But, oh, like, it was such a relief. I think that there's something that Andre and Nick both know after their partnership ended. They probably realize that there's so much more to life than just tennis and a salary, and a contract, they probably realize, you know what, we had such a great partnership, we had such a great friendship, we're not going to just throw it down the drain because of one incident. And the fact that they do still communicate, like you said, whether it's minimal, I mean, just the fact that he was able to call him just to check up on him, that shows a lot of character. It does, it does. It shows that there's, you know, as badly as sometimes working relationships can go, Years pass and people grow up and people change and you can you can you can kind of fix anything really because at this point Agassi's in his forties with like two grown kids, Balotelli's eighty seven years old. I mean, you're kind of at the point where it's like throw things away and then just just start over. But 
what like really, really has stuck with me is how Balotelli is someone that had to do crazy things to get here. He had to go think outside the box. He had someone give him a bunch of money and help him get the academy rolling. So obviously that that's a boost. But you gotta you gotta be a little crazy. And he kind of felt I kind of felt inspired. I was like, you know, maybe we should think about things a little differently, do things more, do things in another way. He mentioned tennis channel and Ken Solomon, who who obviously started the tennis channel kind of out of nothing. I felt like inspired in a weird way. His resume and the amount of players that he has coached clearly he has had to think outside the box i mean granted like you said he did get a nice little amount of money to help him with his um amazing academy that has produced so many players and there are still players that train there day to day but i think that he's never thought inside the box i don't think that he's ever been uh refrained in any way I think that one of the most important things that I took away from it is that don't listen to people that are going to tell you, put you down and tell you you're wrong and tell you you can't do something. I think that he pretty much told all the naysayers, like, screw you, I'm going to do this. You know, if there were if there was someone that would tell me like, hey, yeah, this guy can watch your kid for a few minutes and be able to tell you if they're going to be great. I'd probably laugh, but then again, I'd realize like, hey, Nick Boletari was able to do it. But yeah, that's that's another thing that he actually brought brought up was the fact that in today's tennis world, you really can't determine whether someone's going to be good as easy as it was back in the day. And there's so many different changes from, from when he started playing. I mean, just with the fact that he was getting $3 an hour compared to what he charges now, that's a significant difference in, in the time where he started coaching compared to in today's world. It's it's crazy that he started in the 50s and didn't know anything about tennis and had never coached before and hadn't played before and just he says I didn't know a racket head from the handle and he was charging 3 bucks and now he's I mean I'm pretty sure he charges over 500 bucks an hour now and his parents are just bringing kids to him and being like look at my kid see if he's going to be amazing I mean that's intense that's a lot of pressure to put on one guy but he seems to really I don't know, like, I feel like the academy even today, like, right now is only growing and growing and growing and filled with all these great players. I mean, have you ever been there? I went there every year when I was a kid from about 10 to 18 for the Eddie Herr tournament, which is still going on. And it's, like, the coolest experience because all these kids get thrown into this massive facility and you just run around all day playing tennis and meeting people from different countries. And even though I never wanted or anything, but I all I think of is, like, fond memories of meeting friends and uh, it's just, it's an amazing place. I actually haven't been there. I do remember playing Orange Bowl, um, but I don't think that I actually went to his academy. I know that there's quite a lot of girls um, that are training at his academy still. He's one of those guys that's just one in a billion, you know, never never going to have another Nick Volatari ever. And it just feels like no matter how much you talk to him, I mean, I only had, I had less than an hour, but even the Showtime movie and the books and stuff, it just feels like it's still not enough. It feels like there's still so much more that he has to share. Like, I had no idea he wanted to be a fighter pilot in the Navy. I had no idea. I'm like, where did that come from? That that was your dream? I had no clue. And that came out of completely left field for me. So I think he's got so many more nuggets of information and things to share. I don't think one book's enough, but at least, I mean, it's better than nothing. I agree. It's funny, listening to him speak reminded me a lot of Tom Gullickson, who's another amazing coach who has had an amazing career and coached an unbelievable array of players. Every time I hang out with him, there's been times where I hear the same story a couple times over and I just I just relish in it. I'm just like, yeah, go ahead and tell me again. Obviously, there's going to be a few details that are going to be a little different, but someone like him, I would love to read his book. So when Nick 
comes out with his book, I'm totally going to read it because like you said, 30 minutes is not enough time to listen to his story. So I'm so glad that he finally put pen to paper on it. Literally pen to paper. I, Literally. Yes, I mean, pulled that book out of his bag and I'm like, is this your only copy? But in any case, the book is called The Coach's Journey. It should be out in February, though. Who knows exactly the date or anything, but I'm sure uh, people will find out soon. And then the movie is called Love Means Zero. And just... Honestly, one of the coolest interviews I've ever done. So I hope people enjoyed listening to it because I surely enjoyed listening to Nick. Okay, that's it for this episode of Inside the Tour on the Tennis.com podcast. That was Nick Boletari. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I've been Nina Pantic. And I've been Irina Falcone. Thanks for listening. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 